and welcome to another edition of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. I'm Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz, and it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. All right, this episode we are continuing the Dr. Jazz Jazz Storyteller series in which I'm basically just kind of giving you my own little bio of how I got into music and um, a bunch of stories and a bunch of memories on the way. So, we pick up where we left off from the last episode. And that was me just learning about jazz through a bunch of movies and TV shows and just kind of figuring out who's who at that point, you know. That first role as a sleuth or a detective, if you will, of music is really tough. So, um, besides just being glued to the TV, trying to find anything to do with jazz music or big bands or anything like that, I had no idea. Nobody in my family was experts at jazz. So, I mean, my grandparents listened to some big band, so, but that was the extent of it. So, this episode, I start making trips to the library. And this is back when there was no internet. There was just card catalogs. So, here's a couple of things that I found. in town is Duke's place Love that piano sound in Duke's place Saxes do their tricks in Duke's place Fellas swing their chicks in Duke's place Come on get your kicks in Duke's place Take it Duke
down to Duke's place now. Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington together at the same time in the studio. Now you got to understand what a joy and a thrill that was for me. I've already told you that and shared with you that the very first two jazz tracks I ever heard were Louis Armstrong with Mac the Knife and Duke Ellington with Perdido. And I had no idea that they would ever have recorded together. So I remember very specifically that at the very front counter of the library, there was two or three uh, little black uh, turntable sort of like um, spindle things that almost looked like a Lazy Susan. And on each of the four sides, it was like a square device, and each of the four sides, it had a bunch of just CDs. And of course, you had everything. You know, it was Beethoven... And it was like Elvis Presley and, you know. (sighs) But there were a few jazz CDs there. And, I mean, we're not talking about a big library. I mean, those of you who have access to libraries in much bigger cities, you really don't realize just how lucky you are. Because um, the Wheeler Basin Public Library was not that big of a library. But they did have a few jazz CDs, and when I ran across the name Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, I said, well, this is probably too good to be true. I mean, there's probably some Louis Armstrong tracks and some Duke Ellington tracks, but they all look like Duke Ellington tracks. So, But I'll, I'll check this out and see what it's like. And I popped it into my CD player, my little black boombox, And then nothing but pure joy came out of those speakers for me. And that was the very first track, Duke's Place, which is uh, a retitle of Duke Ellington's Sea Jam Blues. Now, the next CD that I found 
was a Duke Ellington CD. And it only had like three tracks. And I'm like, what is up with this? Three tracks, what a jip. And one of these tracks is like 14 minutes long. What's up with that? And it took me a long time to really get mature enough to understand what was really going on and what was really cooking with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Because this was Duke Ellington live at Newport. And I didn't realize how historical that recording was. So I had to get hip to what was in front of me. I knew that Duke Ellington was hip, but I could only take it in smaller digestible bites at that point. So this is one right away that I had to learn. I have to get hip to what is actually being presented. So I'm going to present that track to you now. This is Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, the track that relaunched Duke Ellington and his orchestra and their career. Enjoy.
Hamilton and his orchestra with Paul Gonzalez blowing an incredible 27 chorus solo that took the jazz world by storm. Thank God they recorded that live. Mm. Jazz history right there for your ears. Ah. So, needless to say, this renewed a whole interest in Duke Ellington. Who is this guy? I need to find out more about this guy because I didn't know that he recorded with Louis Armstrong and I certainly didn't understand that this is such an important thing. I had to get hip to it. And when you force yourself to try to come up to the level of artistry in any of the arts, you get more out of it. That is one thing that went and said that I completely agree with. You get whatever you put into any area of the arts, whether that's literature and Shakespeare or whether that's dance or whether that's jazz music, whether that's classical music, however much attention and detail you put into it is exactly what you will get out of it. And I couldn't agree more. So I went out and I found some jazz CDs and I found my very first real comprehensive Duke Ellington CD and it was called Reminiscing in Tempo and it was just chock full of Ellington classics it's still my very favorite Ellington CD in my entire collection so here's two of the ones that really stood out to me Thank you. 
Duke Ellington from his album Reminiscing in Tempo. That was my very first comprehensive, like almost greatest hits of Duke Ellington. And uh, believe me, I could have just played the whole CD for you because it is that fantastic. It's got the mooch and rockin' and rhythm and it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing and come Sunday and on a turquoise cloud don't get around much anymore take the A train oh god Black Beauty so many of these great great songs but these two really piqued my curiosity because you'll notice that what we heard in the first track the prologue to the black and tan fantasy and in the second track the East St. Louis Toodaloo, there was this growling trumpet. And that sounded totally different than Louis Armstrong. That sounded totally different than Harry James that I've heard with Benny Goodman. What is this sound? Nowhere on that entire Jazz Best CD was there any of this growling wah-wah kind of trumpet what was that and that just sent a lightning bolt through my ears and, and, and in my soul I hadn't felt anything that strongly since I first heard that drum beat and sing 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 since I first heard that very first growl of Louis Armstrong's voice or the cohesiveness of Duke Ellington's orchestra with Perdido it was something completely new. And I realized that I'm in a world of hurt. Apparently there's a lot of magic. There's a lot of cool sounds in this music called jazz. So at this point, I am turned on. All jets are go. And I'm looking to find out what I can about these artists that I know the names of and I've only heard one or two things from. So, the next couple of tracks are going to be some of my favorite tracks from some of the names that I knew of back then and that I completely crawled through these bargain bins of at these record shops like Camelot Music and Sam Goody. And they may be oldies, but they were goodies. So, the first one is the sentimental gentleman of swing, Tommy Dorsey. Saw him in some of those movies that I mentioned in the other episode. So, here is I'm Getting Sentimental Over You. <laughs> Uh-huh. 
Tommy Dorsey with that very sweet high trombone sound. Just gorgeous. And I was like, wow, this guy didn't sound anything like the other trombone players that I've heard. I mean, it just sounds nice. So, and then uh, I saw some of the names and started to explore some of the names on that Jazz Best CD. Because one of the tracks I liked was a track called Apple Honey by Woody Herman and his orchestra. And I found out that Woody Herman not only played the saxophone, but the clarinet too. And he was good at both. So, I found a new favorite track by Woody Herman and his orchestra.
then, after listening to some Woody Herman and digging on those sounds, I decided to explore a little bit deeper into the trumpet player Harry James. Because I knew that he was a killer soloist of the Benny Goodman Orchestra. And I remember him from the movie, The Benny Goodman Story. But there was this series that I found for like, I think, five bucks a CD. It's called the Swing Back With series. And Swing Back With Harry James. Swing Back With Glenn Miller. So, I found a Swing Back With Harry James. And there's this track that was just killer. I'm like, what is this? And I turned. It, it turns out that it was his theme song, just like the East St. Louis Toodaloo was Duke Ellington's first theme songs. And I found out that every big band had theme songs. And I, I understood theme songs because, you know, I used to watch professional wrestling when I was a little kid. Like Hulk Hogan had a theme song and, you know, etc. All these different characters had theme songs. So... I'm like, well, there's a, a commonality. All these big bands have theme songs. So I like Let's Dance by Benny Goodman. I like Moonlight Serenade by Glenn Miller. I liked East St. Louis Toodaloo by Duke Ellington. And I like Woodchopper's Ball by Woody Herman. So naturally, I guess I was just inclined to the theme songs. So here's Harry James's theme song, Cheery Beery Bean. thing I remember now that I've, I've just heard that the thing that I loved about that was the juxtaposition of how it starts out nice and slow and very you know beautiful and flowing and then it just starts bouncing along Harry James just kind of takes it and starts the jet propellers and there goes the band with him and it was just I thought man that's so cool how he could just change the the tempo, the mood, and the vibe just in, in, in the flip of a dime. Well, 
I started digging a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. So now we've got Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Harry James, Woody Herman, Tommy Dorsey. So I started reading, I started checking out books from the library as well. And I started reading about this rivalry between Benny Goodman and this other clarinet player. I'm like, oh, well, if he's anything close to Benny, he's probably pretty good. And boy, was he ever talking about Arthur Jacob Arshavsky, better known to the music world as Artie Shaw. And no, I'm not going to play Begin the Begin. And I'm not going to play Frenesy. But I'm going to play my personal favorite of Artie Shaw's, which is actually his theme song as well, Nightmare. So that track absolutely floored me. I had never, ever, ever heard a clarinet 
like that with that much facility and I was just like holy shit what did I just listen to now I know that that's not everybody everybody doesn't listen to Artie Shaw's nightmare and go holy shit what was that but I did and I did at such a young age that it forced me to beg, plead with my folks to get me a clarinet. And so, by the time I started seventh grade, not only was I playing saxophone, but I was playing clarinet. Because at this point in time, I started playing all these songs, my favorite tracks, In the Mood, Moonlight Serenade, you know, Memories of You by Benny Goodman, Sing Sing Sing, Stomping at the Savoy, Mac the Knife, Perdido. I had started playing them by ear along with my stereo. And so <laughs> a monster was born hours after school. You know, most kids, they just come home right after school and, you know, they go off to their room. They're playing video games or they're, you know, reading comic books or whatever. Not me. I went home right after school, straight back to the bedroom, and I could not get there fast enough in order to start practicing and getting better. And furthermore, what I did was I used to call my grandmother, the same one who got me interested in jazz. Because I thought, you know, well, she's heard these sounds before. She's heard Artie Shaw, I'm sure, on the radio, Benny Goodman. Glenn Miller, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong. And so every night about, oh, after I practiced for a couple of hours, about 8 o'clock, maybe 8.30, I would call, and I used to call her Memo. And I'd call my grandmother up and I'd say, hey, uh, Memo, can I, can I play you something? She's like, well, yeah, sure. W what? And I think she really thought that I was going to play her like a track from like the CDs. <laughs> but I would actually just, I'd put on the CD player and I'd play along. So I'd hold the receiver on the phone, put it on the bed, and then I'd just start playing along with Moonlight Serenade or Sing 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 or Woodchopper's Ball. I'd say, how does that sound? Now, I know there's a few of you that might be going, aw, how sweet. But you didn't know my grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother loved me. There was no doubt about it. But she was a spitfire, which I knew that she would be honest with me. And so because of that, that's why I'm honest with other musicians as well. Because she'd sit there and she'd say, well, <clears throat> sounds pretty good. I think you were a little flat on uh, the first couple of notes of Moonlight Serenade there on the clarinet. But I know you're just starting, but you need to practice a little bit more. You need to get better at that, you know, toughen up them muscles. As only a grandmother can, right? Or I'd be playing in the mood with the Glenn Miller Orchestra on my saxophone, my alto sax. And she's like, I think you're lagging behind there on the melody. I think you're, you're, you're dragging. I think you need to, you know, keep, keep better time with, you know, like listen to it a couple more times. You know, don't just uh, play it just to play it. Make sure you're playing it right. You know, you sound like you're dragging the time a little bit. <laughs> and this woman was not a musician. 
but she had a very keen ear. So, perfection or nothing at all, right? So, at that point in time, I begged her, you know, I said, if you know of anybody that has like a, a trumpet or, or like a trombone, you know, maybe I could learn those instruments too. So this woman, bless her heart, she went and looked in the classifieds in the newspaper every single day till she found from one seller, talk about the divine intervention again, a trumpet and a trombone. The trumpet was $75 and the trombone was 100 And he said, if you'll buy both, I'll sell them to you for 150 And so that's what happened. I came home from school one day and sitting on my bed was a very old trombone case and a very old trumpet case. It was a Cleveland King trombone and it worked beautifully with mouthpieces and a King Silver Flare 1965 trumpet. I'm sorry, it was a 1967 King Silver Flare silver trumpet. And buddy, did I learn in a hurry because I wanted to sound like Tommy Dorsey and I wanted to sound like Harry James and Louis Armstrong. And so needless to say, <clears throat> I developed a practice regiment. Every day I come home from school, I'd play 30 minutes on the saxophone with these tracks, 30 minutes on the clarinet with these tracks, 30 minutes on the trumpet with these tracks, and 30 minutes on the trombone with these tracks. And I started picking apart melodies. I'd had a little plastic keyed keyboard that I found like a little Casio. I think it was like maybe 30 keys or something like that, maybe 40. And I started picking apart melodies and I didn't know rhythms all that well, how to dictate and notate accurate rhythms. So I would just start writing letters. A, C, F, A, C, F, A, C, F, A, C, F for in the mood. And that's how I developed my ear. So I was really on fire, and I was spending a whole lot of time with this. But apparently my little jazz bug got to my mom just a little bit. Not in a bad way. I think it was infectious, that kind of intense digging, that kind of intense super sleuth. Hell, if I had my way, I wouldn't have even went to school. I would have just practiced all damn day. But I did. But my mom apparently thought this is either endearing or infectious because I started hearing tracks like this around the house when she was either cooking dinner or something like that. Criticize me, but I'm going to do 
just as I want to anyway And don't care just what people say If I should take a notion To jump into the ocean Ain't nobody's business If I do If I go to church on Sunday Then cabaret all day Monday Ain't nobody's business if I do If my man ain't got no money And I say take all of mine, honey Ain't nobody's business if I do If I give him my last nickel And it leaves me in a pickle Ain't nobody's business If I do Well, I'd rather my man would hit me Than for him to jump up and quit me Ain't nobody's business If I do I swear I won't call no copper If I'm beat up by my papa Ain't nobody's business If I do Nobody's business Ain't nobody's business Nobody's business If I do So yeah the jazz bug had apparently bit my mom just a little bit. Not enough for her to go crazy, but I'm like, what is that? She said, oh, that's Billie Holiday. That's Lady Day. And I went, say what? Who's that? And at first, you know, I was trying to be a jazz purist. You know, I was like, oh, well, I think she's a blues singer. Not a jazz person, you know. <laughs> How wrong was I ever? But man, tell you what, her delivery and that phrasing, that was some swinging shit for sure. And to this day, I cannot hear that track and not think of my dear mother. Because taint nobody's business if I do. My mom loved that track saying you should mind your own damn business that's the moral of that story you know and it, <laughs> it is so true oh well i started developing this friendship with this uh dude his name was shannon and i'm gonna not 
say any last names just in case to protect any, you know, somewhat innocent folks out there in these stories. So I'm just going to leave them all to first names. So I started developing this friendship with this guy named Shannon. And Shannon would be very influential to me in my discovery and in my journey of finding jazz music. Shannon's dad was a professional musician. So there was lots of great music around Shannon's house. And his mother was a singer. His father was a guitar player. So his dad would chime in on some of these things saying, Hey, uh, you know, Nate needs something uh, to listen to. You got any suggestions? What's he listening to now? Well, he's listening to Glenn Miller and Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong and you know Harry James and Artie Shaw. Oh, well, has, has he heard any bebop yet? And stuff like that? I don't think so. Well, go, go tell him he needs to listen to some Charlie Parker. So Shannon says, you need to check out some Charlie Parker. I'm like, who's Charlie Parker? He's like, he's a bebop legend. I'm like, what's bebop? So I went to the local Walmart <laughs> and I found that they had these very cheaply made gold collection series. There was one for Billie Holiday. There was one for Louis Armstrong. And lo and behold, here's a gold collection by this guy that Shannon had just told me about. Charlie Parker. Now, as a kid who's trying to play stuff by ear with whatever music you get, and you've been playing Memories of You, I'm Getting Sentimental Over You, Sing, sing, sing. In the mood. That was as difficult as it got right there. In the mood. And this is what you hear? Thank you. 
Okay, okay, okay. So that just sounded like a bunch of gobbledygook. I mean, it just sounded like there was like just chaos for a minute. Like, especially when you're all that you can wrap your head around is is Moonlight Serenade, Nightmare, Woodchopper's Ball, maybe some String of Pearls, Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand, Perdido. I mean, it was a stretch, but at least it was swing when I was listening to Minuendo and Crescendo and Blue from Ellington and Newport. But what the hell is this? This is just a bunch of fast notes. Well, they say that jazz, you know, you just make up notes out of your head, right? So that's what I just started doing whenever there was these... I I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. But then... I, I started like taking little little pieces by little pieces, and all I got was the did it didn't did it didn't didn't did it didn't didn't did it didn't didn't did it, and I noticed the repetition, and I'm like, okay, well, I, the trumpet player's doing something, but I can't quite hear that. But I'll I'll learn the saxophone part, and then. I eventually got the the bridge to Night Tunisia. I'm like, okay. But God bless when Bird took that break, man. I'm just like, what the hell is this? How am I supposed to make any sense of this? So I said, okay, okay, okay. There's like 12, 15 tracks, something like that. Let's just move on to the next track. Well, my luck, here was the next track. Thank <laughs> you. 
Coco. Coco was the next track. I, I mean, it, it, comparatively, A Night in Tunisia seems like a walk in the park compared to Coco. I'm like, oh my God, what is that? So my head is in an absolute tailspin. I have all whiplash from the hell for leather breakneck speed of this new kind of music. So needless to say, I go over to Shannon and I'm just like, what the hell is this that you told me to check out? He's like, that's bebop. I'm like, how do you go from big bands to bebop, man? It's like, what the hell? I mean, it all just sounds like just garbage. It's just like gobbledygook. I mean, how do you find a melody out of that? Where's the smooth, like Moonlight Serenade? How do you find that? Where's the little bouncy swing stuff like Woodchopper's Ball or In the Mood? I mean, where's the damn melody, man? And he just chuckled and he said, give it time. Give it time. So I gave it another week. And I... I made up a listening station at my house. I took an old blue beanbag chair and I set it in the garage in my parents' house. And I used my dad's stereo and uh, his speakers. And I, I just listened in the garage as loudly as I could over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I found four quote-unquote bebop CDs that really weren't all that much bebop. i am get to that in a minute. But I started trying to go, okay, 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 okay. So I'm just not, not going to try to play by ear. I'm just going to try to keep listening till I get this. So here's round two. I'm not hip enough yet to understand what's going on. 
So I had to come up to the bar of artistry, of musicianship, of genius, of what Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie were laying down. I was not hip to what was going on, not from my background. And in watching in the future documentaries, I, I, I can sympathize where some of those people were coming from who were swing dancers and they didn't like bebop. Bebop was meant for listening, not dancing. But you can, you can raise your level of awareness, your ears up to that level. It's totally possible. So I started, you know, checking out books from my school library. By this point, I was in the eighth grade. And I started checking out books from my school library. And I, and I still, I've I found copies of them. And, and I've bought copies of these books because I thought they were so important and influential. They were by um, the Black Americans of Achievement series by Coretta Scott King, Dr. King's wife. And they had one on Louis Armstrong. They had one on Duke Ellington, which I, I'd read and I thoroughly enjoyed. But then I found one on Charlie Parker and one on Dizzy Gillespie. And I said, okay. And in one weekend, I read both of those books, probably about 100 pages each. But in one weekend, I read both of those books and I just remember feeling such a heavy feeling of sadness. Like the way you feel after you read Romeo and Juliet for the first time. About what happened to Charlie Parker's life. And I said, okay, I can't give up on this guy. The, it, it, his his life story is, is filled with so much hubris. It just seems so tragic. I, I, I got to keep trudging forward. I got to come up to this bar. I got to figure this out. So then I talked to my friend Shannon again. And he said, okay. I talked to my dad. He says, you need to get something called an Omnibook. It's something called a Charlie Parker Omnibook. And I said, okay. He said, and also... Check out Dizzy Gillespie. He might be a little bit more your speed. And I said, okay. So, <laughs> there I went. I was off to Walmart and Camelot Music trying to find anything by Dizzy Gillespie that I could. Well, took a right turn with that one. I found an album called Endlessly by Dizzy Gillespie. And I'm expecting... That's not what I found. But this is what I did find. And I found a tune that I actually dug. It wasn't bebop, but I could get along with the melody. And it's called Just Tipping In.
So needless to say, I went back and told Shannon, I dig some Dizzy Gillespie. He was like, oh good, what'd you find? I said, well I found this album called Endlessly. You know, it was like a $5 CD or something like that. It might have even been $3. You know, I think it was in the bargain bin. And it was Dizzy on the Impulse label. It was like a 1989, 1990 CD. So it was almost on the verge of smooth jazz for Diz. <laughs> I, I look back and I realize how ridiculous it was. But it was like, it was like the, the thing that I needed to keep me going at that point. It's like, okay, you still can find a melody. You know, don't drive yourself crazy. So, but I did find out of the music store a Charlie Parker Omni book, and I started looking through, and I've never seen so many black notes in my life, all connected together. And then when you played the the song and tried to follow along, it's like speed reading. But there was the answer right in front of my eyes. I knew I just had to keep trying to play what was on the page keep practicing keep practicing so now I had a different way of playing my horn needless to say I spent a lot more time on the saxophone than on the clarinet or the trumpet or the trombone by this point I was completely bitten by the Charlie Parker bug in order to try to get better and that's what I did now one of the other bebop quote-unquote bebop CDs I found was something uh, on the laser light label and it was this other guy that uh, Shannon had suggested to me he's like well maybe you should check out some Stan Getz so I said okay how do you spell that G-E-T-Z okay that seems odd enough if I see that I'll keep that in the memory bank now these are the curses of a small town you didn't have you know Getz Gilberto, you didn't have the Jazz Samba album with Stan Getz and Charlie Bird. But you did have this Laser Light Records Jazz Collector Edition for like $4, you know. But, and it had mislabeled tracks as well. But, there was some great numbers on there. And I'm going to share these next two with you. My Funny Valentine, which is still one of my favorite tracks by Stan Getz. And then a mistitled tune, which I loved, but it was called Stan's Tune on the CD. When in fact it's actually Con Alma by Dizzy Gillespie. How's that for justice? Enjoy. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Thank you. 
All right. So that was some Stan Getz that I checked out. And I really dug it. So I went back and I was telling Shannon. I was saying, hey, I really dig the Stan Getz, man. You know, and I really dig this Dizzy Gillespie. And he's like, oh, good. And I told him that I was working out of the Charlie Parker Omni book slowly. But that I was. And he said, okay, I'll ask my dad, you know, what he thinks maybe your next step should be. So he came back like the next day. And he said that his dad said, I think he might be ready for some Miles Davis. So I said, okay. You know, he said, you, you should try some Miles Davis. I said, well, okay. You know, He didn't say what. He just said, you should try out some Miles Davis. So I went to the Walmart and there was this picture of this dude and it said Miles Davis and it was like from Trace Records it was called Bird of Paradise and this is what I heard
Yeah. So every track on that CD was bebop. It was either Little Willie Leaps, Bird of Paradise, Embraceable You, I mean, Scrapper from the Apple. It was all these bebop classics. And keep in mind, there was like no liner notes whatsoever. It was just like a printed piece of paper with Miles Davis. And in fact, it was actually 80s Miles Davis with like long hair from the hair plugs. Maybe even 90s, like 1990 on the cover. Which is not indicative of the music whatsoever. So, I sit there and I said, well, this kind of sounds like that Charlie Parker stuff. So, needless to say, I was very underwhelmed, disappointed. I mean, I was already starting to just do my work on Charlie Parker with the Omnibook, but I didn't need more of the same. Let me figure one out first, you know. I didn't see the big difference, so to speak. So, anyway, I'll get to the conclusion of that in a minute. Meanwhile, my I'm going to keep this very PG, you know. So, my cousin was in band in middle school at the same time I was. And she played the saxophone as well, alto saxophone. And I didn't really partake so much in this. But it seemed like the other side of the family wanted to make it like this competition between me and her of who was the best saxophone player and all this other stuff. So by this point, I'm like, I I could care less. You know, it's just like I'm in the jazz vein, man. I could care less about what we're doing in school or what we're playing or what pieces we're doing or what I should be doing as far as, you know, for a grade. I want to know if I can play like Charlie Parker. I want to know if I can, you know, get to that point. If I can play like Jimmy Dorsey playing BB. If I can play in the mood. Those sort of things, you know. If I can play like Duke Ellington saxophone player, Johnny Hodges. These are the things that I was thinking about. But my aunt had heard this song on, I think it was like VH1 back then. And it was a a big saxophone feature. So she bought the single cassette tape, mind you. And she said, all right, if you're so good at playing stuff by ear, figure this out. And I said, well, challenge accepted. And so... It was different than anything I've ever heard. Here's what it was. Imagine being a 8th grader with a saxophone in your room. You've just put in a cassette tape with a weird artistic image on it. You plop it into the cassette player. You press play, and this is what it is.
Wow. That was different. That was certainly not in the mood. And that certainly wasn't Charlie Parker. Wasn't Stan Getz. This is something totally different. It was a saxophone, all right, but it was edgy. And he kept hitting a lot of high notes that I'd never even tried to hit or I've, I've never heard before. <sighs> so I didn't know exactly what to do. So I said, well, okay, this is the task that has presented itself before me. And I'm never one to let off of a challenge. So I kept working at it, kept working at it. I got the little melody down. ba 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 da 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 and I kept on trying to do different things. I kept on trying to change my embouchure, change my, my neck strap height, change my, my breathing patterns. And finally, I noticed that if I, if I overblow just enough, I kind of get the edgy tone. So, and then <clears throat> I go to the music store and I ask the guy, I said, how do I get an edgy jazz tone like this guy on this tape David Sanborn and he said oh well we got a couple mouthpieces you can try try some of these metal ones and the metal ones didn't really feel too good on my teeth you know so he said well try this and it was a Van Doren Jumbo Java jazz mouthpiece I said okay well let me try that had this very high baffle so the it was like a paper thin airstream and then it just burst and it gave me that exact edge that I needed so I'm like alright I'll take this one so took that mouthpiece home started working on it started going and uh, playing along with the David Sanborn thing and then I started um, jutting my bottom jaw out so when I did that and I fooled around with different finger combinations I figured out how to get those exact same high notes that David Sanborn was playing now I didn't know what the term altissimo notes meant on saxophone at all I was just playing by ear the same way I'd, I had been doing and I was trying to just figure it out. It's like a puzzle piece, you know? And that's exactly what I did. And that's where I actually learned my altissimo notes on the saxophone. It was from this challenge to figure out Bang Bang by David Sanborn. And I learned how to split tones, and I learned how to get those altissimo notes, and I remembered what those fingerings were, and I wrote them down, little shading charts for fingerings. And I got this mouthpiece that helped me sound really jazzy, really edgy, you know. And that's the same mouthpiece that I use to this day. I've never changed. It's always been the one for me. So, from here on out, any adventures that you hear of me playing my saxophone are with this same mouthpiece from this moment forward. So, after so much intensive scrutiny between the Charlie Parker Omnibook and the David Sanborn Bang Bang Challenge, I thought it was time to move to the clarinet. And I found out, because I've already had... 
uh, I always lean more anyway, like I had mentioned before, towards Benny Goodman's smaller groups. I love the big band, but I really, really was enamored with the small groups, the Benny Goodman Trio, the Benny Goodman Quartet. And so when I found out that Artie Shaw had recordings of him in a small group, well, then I said, well, I have to check that out. So there's this album called Artie Shaw's Last Recordings. It's a double CD set on Music Masters. And there was this old tune that I'd heard before on some big band track, but not like this. So I had to figure this out on clarinet. And it's Artie Shaw with Hank Jones, actually, on the piano, playing Besame Mucho. Here it is.
I mean, if you're a kid and you've just been listening to Artie Shaw play Nightmare and Begin the Begin and all those things like that, alone together, and you hear that, Artie Shaw completely playing with the time, totally improvising, you know, the, the, the figures are a lot more inventive, a lot more busy than the little fragments that you would hear for so- clarinet solos in the big band records. I was hooked. I had to figure this out. I had to figure out what he was doing. I had to figure out how he made that time like elastic, how he made that time just expand and contract like a rubber band. How did he do that? So I started kind of playing along with it, playing by ear. You know, my ear is starting to get sharper by this point because you're trying to figure out Charlie Parker things by ear. You're trying to look through the Omni book so you start to get an idea of how things lay on instruments. And uh, you, you, of course, are still playing some of those big band tunes just to keep them under your fingers so you don't forget them, right? Okay. So... This is something different, and you start to move away from this point. You start to move away from the big band stuff and more into this new world. And this reminds me of a story. By this point, I'm probably approaching ninth grade, starting high school, and, you know, we had a very, 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 very big band. So we would take all these band trips, you know, each spring. You know, we were lucky enough to do that. Well, my freshman year, the band drove in a bus down to Orlando from Alabama to Orlando, Florida, nonstop. And I befriended this baritone player. His name was David. And David was older. And I, I remember talking with David. And when everybody else is asleep on the bus, you know, I was a night owl. Still am for the most part. But when everybody else is asleep on the bus, I would be sitting there with my little disc man for my CDs and my headphones. And I was listening to Harry James and Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw. Charlie Parker and Stan Getz, but mainly the big bands and stuff like that, because it was familiar, you know what I mean? It was something to just kind of pass the time. And David, as nice as he was, sat there and he says, if I hear one more brass section coming from your headphones, so help me God, I'm going to kill you with my bare hands. As only high school bandmates can say with so much love (laughs) and the next day he found me and he apologized kind of tongue-in-cheek but he says look man I'm sorry I was just trying to get sleep and this is a guy who was very interesting because David could go to sleep listening to Tchaikovsky and wake up listening to Alice in Chains. So, an interesting dichotomy with him. But he listened to everything in between. And he said, and I'll never forget this, you know, 
you are going to drop these big bands one day like a hot potato. I know you might not think so now. But by the time you leave high school, I want you to come to me and say, Damn it, David. You were right. And I want you to check out this band. And it's called Weather Report. It's going to change your life, Holloway. It's going to change your life. And I want you to listen to an album called Heavy Weather. Because every damn track is a gem. And if you don't, I'll kill you with my bare hands. I said, okay. So I took the hint. I went to Camelot Music. I found Weather Reports, Heavy Weather, one of the Columbia Jazz Masterpieces. You know, I said, all right, this looks different. It's got a fedora on the front. There's like different weather going on. It's like a city. Okay. Give this thing a shot. So I popped it into my CD player, and this is the first track I heard.
what in God's name was that? Instantly enjoyable, instantly identifiable. And I said, what? This is totally different than Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, Charlie Parker, Stan Getz, Dizzy Gillespie, Harry James, any of that myth. It, it, it's just so different. This is totally different than even that small group stuff of Artie Shaw. This is even different than that David Sanborn guy. Thought I learned that song from my aunt. You know, and it, it what is this? So David was right. Absolutely loved Weather Report. And I'm like, who who all's in this? There's this guy, Joe Zavino. Well, I need to look up about him. Here's this guy, Wayne Shorter. He's a co-leader. I need to look up about him. Who's who's this on bass? Jaco Pastorius. Well, I need to learn about him. Manolo Badrena. I need to learn about him. Alex Acuna. Wow. So then I started checking out more Weather Report. And actually, I can remember <laughs> the very first thing I did was I went to my, my family's encyclopedia because there was no internet. Keep this in mind, y'all. I started looking up Weather Report. They said see jazz. So I went to the J volume and I looked up jazz. And there's just like a page. And there's a picture like Herbie Hancock in the 70s. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Information was limited, y'all. Big time. So I said, well, you know, save up some allowance. See if I can go find another Weather Report album. So I did. And I found this album called Black Market. And oh my God. I sat there one weekend. My brother could have testified to this. You know, he, he said it drove him absolutely batty and insane because our rooms were back to back. And I stayed up to like 2 a.m. with my ear to the speaker and my little EDBD 30 key Casio keyboard with plastic keys right next to the speaker trying to figure out this melody over and over and over and over and over and over again for probably three plus hours. But the melody was like, I kept on trying to get all those notes right. All those notes right. So instead of listening to me sing it, why don't you hear the actual track for itself?
Oh, yeah. Over and over and over again, but damn it, was it worth it. What a killer track. Black Market, off of Weather Report's Black Market album. For just hours, I just sit there and try to find that a similar sound to Joe Zavinol's synthesizer and just get that melody. I just, oh my God, I just heard it over and over and over and over and over and over again. But it was so worth it because I finally figured it out. And in the process, I became a huge Weather Report fan. And I let David know that I didn't have, he didn't have to wait till I finished high school. He'd given me a direction down this street. I went down it and I loved it. So speaking of friends and musical directions, so I went back to my old pal Shannon. And I said, hey man, listen, I checked out that Miles Davis thing that you told me about. I don't dig it. And I know I had to sound like the biggest idiot on the planet. But he was, what do you mean you don't? dig it I said look man it just sounds like the same bebop shit that I heard before with Charlie Parker man I just don't I'm working through that Charlie Parker stuff I just, I just don't get it you know what I mean and, and I'm trying I'm still working on some, a couple of songs but I mean this Miles stuff it, it doesn't sound any different it just sounds the same he's like well what in the hell album did you get man I said oh well I got the Bird of Paradise album he's like what the hell's that I said, I don't know. He goes, bring it tomorrow. Show it, show it to me. So I bring him this. He goes, this cheap piece of shit? He goes, no, 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 no. That's not Miles. And see, Shannon was a trumpet player. So this one he didn't necessarily need to ask his dad so much about. Shannon already knew some Miles Davis. So he said, okay. You need to go and find Kind of Blue. Go this weekend to Camelot Music. Go find Kind of Blue. And I said, okay. So I found Kind of Blue by the Miles Davis. Had a bunch of names on this on this front. You know what I mean? And it, it, it looked weird. I mean, he was in this, this scarf. And it was like this blue-hued lighting. I mean, it wasn't the classic kind of blue album cover. This is the Columbia Jazz Masterpieces series. And they took a picture of Miles from when he was in the 70s and put that as the cover of it. That was my very first version of Kind of Blue. And then there was another Miles album right next to it in the little uh, bargain bin at the front of Camelot Music for $4.99. I mean, Kind of Blue was only like $8.99. New. Not used. New. And then there was this album next to it. And there's another Columbia Jazz Masterpieces album. And it was this black lady on the front of it. And just her face. And it said, Miles Davis, the Sorcerer. And I said, well, that sounds creepy as hell. Let's give that a shot and see what happens. So I decided to put on the sorcerer first and this is what I heard
So I put this track on, the very first track of Miles Davis's Sorcerer album. The title was Prince of Darkness. And I said, ooh, that sounds spooky. Not to mention, I, I remember very hyper-specifically, I put that track on, and this, like, thunderstorm came by. Like a heavy, heavy rain. And I just remember that every time I would put that track on, whether I was trying to play it by ear, or whether I was just putting it on in the background when I had to do homework or whatever, it seemed to always rain for like the first 20 times I put on this track. Whenever that track would happen, it would always rain. Hmm. So, and I said, okay, well, that's completely different than the bebop thing that I had of Miles. So, but I mean, it, at least it's different. So I said, all right, let's see what this kind of blue has to offer.
is at this very moment, I knew my entire world was about to change. I can follow that melody. It's hip, it's cool, it's different. It's nonchalant. It's like its own galaxy. And it was completely different than the bebop stuff I'd heard before. And what I'd just heard with that Prince of Darkness track. And all of a sudden, I got this feeling that this guy, Miles Davis, was a man of a thousand different musical faces. And I was interested to see what's behind every single one of them. And I did. We'll pick up next time. Thank you for listening. Please check out the website, The Dr. Jazz Podcast. That's D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com Thank you for listening, and until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, y'all be good now. Because in jazz, we trust. I went down to St. James Infirmary.